we're going to be spending most of our time, and I say this with a grain of kosher salt, cursing uh, not one another, but talking about curses. Uh, but before I do, just a little historical context. Uh, Deuteronomy, this Deuteronomus, if it's God, accept that call. Uh, in the second telling, historically, we are probably post-exilic. We're probably after 586 BCE, after the first temple, after our first inhabitation of the land. And so... There's a good chance that Ezra, who has redacted this beautiful text that we, we revere and celebrate, is saying this from the outside. When you inherit the land, and so I just, this is a huge grain of kosher salt, let's just be clear. There are very clear reasons why they were not in the land. And so this is like when the parent, the kid gets kicked out of school and says, when you enter college, you better do well. And if you don't, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be living in some podunk apartment, serving Fresh Brothers pizza and delivery. You're going to have zits all the time. No one's going to date. Mm-mm-mm. But it is framed as before they've actually done this. So is that, that was just a point of clarification. Historically, it's a little easier to take some of this uh, post-exilic, meaning after the fact, so that they're trying to explain why it happened rather than, you better watch out, you better not cry, because I don't like God as Santa Claus. I, I really don't like this, you know, be a good, uh, and I'll be honest too, I struggle with this, this Parsha. I struggle with the Deuteronomistic cycle, which is, I love you, God, I love you, God, I love you too. I sinned, you're so bad. Oh no, you're punished. Help, help, please, I love you, God, I love you. Okay, come on back, I love you. <laughs> I, I mean, we can joke, but this is not a healthy cycle of relationship. In, in my humble opinion, and I think Midrash has kind of countered some of these balances. Okay. The first point I wanted to make, and we will get to discussion points, and I, I, in the back of your mind, I want you to think about your best curses that you have received that have been inspirational to you in your life. I will give you two of my own before... Oh, I, yeah, let me just give you two so you can think about it, and then I'll yammer some more. So one is the Yiddish saying from my Bubby. Uh, your head's like an onion, you're growing into the ground. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Your head's like an onion, you're growing into the ground. When I was, we say something else, your head's stuck up your butt. I even like it better because, you know, onions grow down. And, and the other, Margo, lovely to see you. Don't worry. Good morning. Here, uh, we're on chapter 26, page 1193. Here's the other one that my dad did to me. God bless his soul. I love him. Uh, I call this the iron skillet of the soul. So I, I don't know. I ditched. I forgot. I didn't do something. My sister was a perfect student. I, let's just say, was not. Um, he put, uh, and God bless Cal State Northridge, uh, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, it was not the same fine institution that it is today. Uh, he put a Cal State Northridge uh, application on my desk and with a post-it note that said, I can always hope. <laughs> Lit a fire. I mean, after uh, 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 slam the door. The reason we slam doors against our parents is we need to let them hear it. That was my cursing. Or yeah, I'm not talking about four-letter words because we're going to get into cursing, but I... Hi, Carol. Good morning. Um, these are motivators. Uh, I'm just, they're motivators. I, I, I went to University of Michigan, and I really did become, uh, in some ways, because of those very hard years after my sister left for school, and I had to define myself apart from her, uh, it really changed my life. So I want you to think in the back of your mind when a curse actually uh, was a blessing, uh, when someone actually challenged you in a, in a harsh way, uh, and that's the discussion. Uh, before that, I just, I, I think we should make clear, and this is back to the historical point about this is probably coming from a writer in Babylonia asking, Al Naharot Bavel, which are really on the canals of, uh, of Babylon, um, why they're writing this in the context of the way they are. In the first line, I think we just take it for granted, Kitavo El that when you enter the land, I, this is an obvious point, but I just want to take a second and acknowledge it. We are not sweet generous 
We are not nativists. I, I love Israel. I cannot make the argument I have always been there. That's not what my Torah tells me. When you enter the land, so that's point number one. And it's a little stark. It's going to be a struggle, and you're going to have to enter this land, and there will be blessing, which is not unconditional. That's the second point that I just, I need to just, it's not unconditional. Perhaps you could say love is unconditional, but I'm apologizing because it's not. I mean, I just, just to, to drive that point home, uh, it just really, it, it's almost hard to read, but that actually God will delight in your failure if you don't follow these rules. That's heavy. That's an I told you so. It's such a thick guilt trip, and I told you so, and then the only way that I can apologize for it, and I'm admittedly apologizing, is this is after the fact and we're not in the land, which is very different uh, in today's terms as far as statehood, nationality. I'm not talking about the modern state of Israel whatsoever. I'm, in fact, talking about a spiritual state. Uh, We're entering Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and I'm not trying to get back to this place of uh, perfection or when I was a young child and everything was good. And in fact, I'm looking at myself and saying, how do I inspire myself to get back to what will be blessing? And in some ways, it's challenging myself in this Parsha with a ruhr, or rare. Uh, which, by the way, Arur with an Aleph here. Now we can look back to the text. Do you remember I, I talked two weeks ago about this beautiful uh, pageantry of six tribes and six tribes with two mountains, do you remember? And they say, Amen and Amen. We're repeating this here. Um, and notice that uh, as we turn now, let's just... Uh, I'm, I'm skipping over, by the way, that my father was a wandering Aramean. This is from the Haggadah. But even that is the same point as Kitavo. My father was a wandering Aramean. I mean, I start as an immigrant. Yeah. How many years after the exile was this, is this projected to have been written? So very hard to say. I mean, we're talking uh, right around the text, 7th, 8th century before the Common Era. We know 586 B.C. was the uh, driving out of Cyrus. So we're talking uh, about 200 years around but it's hard because the redaction happened at 586 so then even within that 100 years this text could have been this isolated and it is a beautiful narrative that flows through from Kitetse to Kitavo what we did last week so it's hard to say about a 100 year 100 year gap and there wasn't this uh, anticipation of entering that land again Babylonians Jews were doing quite well at that period. But you'll see that he's needling the wealthy about all of their privilege. Those, and I love this, uh, we, we'll read the text itself, just how they curse and what those curses mean. Uh, I couldn't uh, stop reading uh, when I read this text to myself. You guys see Blue Orchid, the Woody Allen film with a uh, oh, Blue Jasmine. That's what I kept reading. Sorry, Orchid Jasmine. Photographic memory with a cracked lens is what my wife used to say. It's terrible. Okay. What? Oh, yeah? Oh, my. What a powerful film. But it is this question of conditional relationship. Heshket Ushma Yisrael. Silent and be listened. O Israel, we're now on page 1198. And so again, with the huge... Yes, please. Chapter 27, verse 15. With, again, the disclaimer, forgive me for cursing you all so eloquently this morning. Cursed be anyone who makes a sculpted or molten image abhorred by Adonai, a craftsman handiwork, and sets it up in secret, and all the people must respond... Amen. Amen. What's interesting about that uh, first curse? What, Secret. Correct. So, but it's also the, the, the Ten Commandments say you shouldn't do it at all. 
secret or not. That's the second telling is in secret. So what does that say? Kind of be a critical thinker here. What are these laws really about? What's going on within you? Within you. In private. The things that legislation can't scope. Like, I can catch you if you're speeding. I can't catch you if you're hurting your your child in your own home. Well, maybe even if you're on your own. By yourself. Correct. And this is that I can't. So this is Durkheim's famous law of sociology. If there's ever a law in the books that says you shouldn't do something, what does that mean? They're doing it. (laughs) They're doing it. They're doing it. And this is uh, both to the point that we've made earlier in idolatry is that idolatry is the framework for which other licentious and bad things happen. So that is idolatry stands for this semiotic of private evil that is not uh, a kind of ethical discourse as much as a uh, cultic cultic ritual that encourages uh, uh, poor ethics. Cursed be one who insults his father or mother, all the people say. Amen. Do we need that? We talked about this uh, even in the last chapter. We know that the insult of father and mother. What, right? We talked about this. The rebellious and stubborn child. Stone. But then you saw how the rabbis took that, pulled that apart. But here it is. Now, Durkheim's law. Has anybody been cursed by their children? No. Right. Yeah. To our face? Right. In secret, even worse, what's the biggest curse? Ignoring, in some ways, that neglect. That neglect. Talking to the hand, we call it the Heisman in my house. You know, Heisman in my house. Or he just just scrolling right through. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I just, I I just, and so here's your idolatry, right? Well, I won't go too far into that, but I I do think that this is incredibly current, the way that this is constructed, and that we all have to face one another in these six tribes and do this ritual of amen. I swear, I will not, I will not do these things. Yes? Is is the Hebrew or or and? Aviv ve'imo. And ve amar, well, to, to be more specific, Bert. The, chapter the and verse, says, as you asked me. Okay, sixteen. Chapter twenty-seven, right. verse sixteen. The, cha- the English translation says, "Cursed be the one who insults father or mother." The Hebrew says, "Aviv imo." Right. And is that, or. And is, is it? Uh, my question is: Is this the right translation? I would say and or slash and and, if you want to be compassionate and but that's the worst I'll I'll give you another story from my childhood you know the big bed there were actually there were phones connected to lines back in the day so I knew if I was going to go out late at night I would shift the phone to my mom's side because she passed out and my dad's a very light sleeper so I knew that if the phone rang she would pick it up and go mom I'm going to stay out another couple hours whereas my dad where are you what are you doing get home right now so this is but I knew that my father would be the harder punisher and so this is why I think you can't say or because I would go to my mom who would be more uh, compassionate and I don't know if you've ever experienced this as parents uh, how kids may play one off of the other and that's okay I do want we're going to take I want to take a round of some of the I'm just trying to percolate some grist for the mill which is but the real challenge is how did this why are we doing this ritual it's to empower blessing it's to empower a sense of you better watch out, but also, what is the flip side of this? Because there is blessing here. Now, I, I want to take another uh, aside, which is the rabbis spend a lot of time talking about why the length of curses are so much more than blessing. And uh, I, I think it's both true, we spend more of our time bitching than <laughs> celebrating, and yet, I think the verbiage is not necessarily evident of the blessing in our life versus the curses. In fact, we have it really great. We bitch all the time. Uh, is that okay? Is that a bad word? That's fine with me. Okay. So we complain all the time, but things are good. Things are really good. And in fact, when things are really hard, those, those kinds of fetchings, you don't, 
you don't fetch about, you know, oh, who took the... Sorry, I'm, I'm a father. So who took the razor brand crunch? Who left just the little uh, remnants of the razor brand crunch? There are six boxes right under the... When you don't have food to eat, you're very grateful for what you have. And so I think this is a context, and I want to go back to the history. They're in Babylonia. They're in exile, and they're quite well. How do you encourage them to remember this land that actually spit them out, in a sense, that was conditional? Tough love here. Sorry, I feel bad. I'm such a nice guy. I don't want to make you feel bad. But let's keep cursing. <laughs> I think it's fabulous. Yes. It's fabulous that we curse the one who subverts the rights of the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. Absolutely. And the fact that they did that they knew this then makes me so connected and proud. Not just not just connected and proud about the cursing. We set this up as my father was a stranger and poor. He was a wandering Aramean. That's how I bring my first fruits. Not with, I always lived here. I was born on third. I'm so glad I stole home. No, I show up here and say I struggled. I had challenges and I came. That connects me even more to the stranger. Gare is not stranger. It's really a bad term. What does in Hebrew lagur mean? It's the other. See, other is one way. Ger is strange, but lagur, gar, gartisham, anybody Hebrew? Live. To live. Resident. A resident. How do we get from that to? Resident alien. Oh, okay. A resident alien. Resident. It's strange. Ger vitoshav. This is playing on what Sarah is proud of, and I think we, we are that totally inhabited American that knows deep down you know I, look I've been in LA since 1930 that's a long time my, my great grandfather but he came from Brooklyn and for that it was outside of Minsk not even Minsk which was basically a new city in the late 1800s he, he was Minsk a like Minsk adjacent when <laughs> someone asked me where did where are you from I say Minsk adjacent that's Minsk <laughs> thank you no too big of a city yeah, right? You were not from, uh, yeah, right? Okay, so Pinsk Jason. I knew you were a brother. I want to put in a vote for verse 18. Okay. I agree with Sarah on, what is it, 19? Verse 18, misdirects the blind underway. Takes advantage. Yeah. Right. It's like putting a stepping stone before the blind. Correct. Which has all... <clears throat> First of all, it's private. The person theoretically doesn't know about it because you're misdirecting them. I guess that has to do with giving bad advice, intentionally or unintentionally. Being trustworthy. Being trustworthy. Someone who, who has, who's depending on you. Like the 18-month-old little girl who died. Mm -hmm. uh, she was in the, uh, what, what is it? She, she was... She never got medical care. Oh, yeah, she never got medical care in the uh, emergency room. No, we're talking about the detention. Yeah, the holding center. But this isn't. Isn't this intentionally misleading somebody? Well, yeah, it is someone who is privately manipulating justice, which the priesthood cannot control. Just like moving a person's landmark, taking someone's parking spot, <laughs> using a handicapped placard. Uh, we can go on and on. Yeah. When you're not handicapped. I'm not sure if I want to curse if it was unintentional. Right. You know, if, if I'm giving direction. 
Yes. So my heart says that's the way to go, and mm -hmm. and they trip over. Right. So that I call the blind leading the myopic. <laughs> you know, and myopic, the, myopic leading the blind, and I absolutely agree. Like, you know, like someone's like, hey, what prayer do we sing? I'm like, it's week two. You know, cut me some slack. I don't even know what I share Corvana la Vodato means yet. <laughs> so, like, yes, and I think so. It has to be intentional. And, uh, and yet here, even with a child, cursing. If my kid doesn't learn how to swear better and, and get a thicker skin, I mean, why would I send him to public school? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I want him learning these things. And if he doesn't, like right now, I have the opposite curse, which is fine. Fine. It's fine. Fine. I'm fine. Fine. Feelings in need of expression. I just learned that. I'm researching. Right? I'm not an introvert. I have to learn these things. Yeah, I know, Bert's shocked. <laughs> so, okay, and so interesting. Blind, Mr. Rex, landmark, cursed be the man who sleeps with his father's wife. Okay, now let's get more explicit. Oi. Yeah. And also private. Yeah. And people say amen. Cursed be the one who lies with the beast, they say amen. Cursed be a man who lies with his sister, daughter, father, mother, amen. Cursed be the man who lies with his mother-in-law, amen. Cursed be the one who strikes down a fellow Israelite in secret, and they all say amen. What was missing from the list of sexual licentiousness? Homosexuality. Correct. Did you notice that? Omission. Why? Now let's go back to his, his, historical. Deuteronomus. Law changes. New, right? Static, by omission. It's what's not said. Did that come later? No, that was earlier. So why did they omit it now? Because uh -huh. that was not seen as what happens in private. This is the Texas case, the Backey case, yeah? Wasn't it Backey, the one in Texas? Uh, the early, early case. It was happening in a private home. What happens in private home? Adults. They were consenting adults. Different. Uh, evolving. It doesn't say. I believe so. I believe. Well, yeah. Okay. What happens in Babylon? You're thinking Vegas. No. I. I think it's. It's just a shift in culture. It's a shift in culture, and they're not being explicit about it. This is not uh, necessarily where we're at with gay. They didn't sanction it in a private context because if there ever was the time to put it in the Deuteronomus, it's right there. Mm -hmm. I, and I just I, I wanted to note that omission. Yeah. Are, are you saying that in the span of just <clears throat> hundreds of years, the total culture changed with respect to homosexuality? No, I am not. I am saying that one fabulous reteller of our law, who with Ezra's genius, about a hundred years later, in about five eighty six reframe this context and no one in that editing room said what about that <laughs> do you understand that's but different is it, Dave that is, a, is the omission a mistake no or is it for real are you asking my opinion here yes, yes, right. not a mistake for sure so genius says hey I'm changing the law I'm leaving ah, the ah, so there so that's this is <laughs> this is interesting law right Culture may change because I mean, look at no, the last law. forty years. I mean, here. it's Leviticus. It is law. Correct. Right. And then in Deuteronomus, they simply list the laws. Like I talk to my kids, and all of a sudden, like <laughs> when I'm talking to Nathan, he watched uh, what's it called, Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he laughed at me when I talked about pot. So Ezra, but it's an omission. <laughs> I just listed the things. Don't do, you know? Don't mainline. Don't not. It's just scaring the. But, but Patooties just, out of him. But didn't Ezra then sit here and say, you know, I can't say that, that I'm changing the law, but I'm just going to leave it out. What, I don't understand the context that all of this takes This place. is like the beginning of Talmud. I, could <clears throat> Ezra have forgotten about this? No. Could he have been gay? Well, that's... A, okay, whoa. All right, Oliver Stone. All right, Oliver Stone. That's... Uh, that's... What, and the context has changed. And what is in our focal point of our minds has changed. But and I, your point is the omission was deliberate. Of course. I believe so. As opposed to just accidentally listing a bunch of sins that didn't happen to make the top ten. Right. 
I don't think it's accidental. I don't. So Ezra wants to change the law. Ezra wants to morph the law and keep it consistent. Why do you think he says later on, or not he, God, this is Torah, and just, just a theological point. This is Torah to me. It is absolutely sacred, and the iteration of its original intent is sacred. I'm just not an originalist. Meaning, wow. yeah, this is, this is an evolution, and it's not by omission. But it's not an evolution over a thousand years. It's an evolution 500. Three weeks. 500. I mean, in t- historically, not big. I mean, and look, I could go on a liberal screed right now. Yeah, the movement from civil rights in the 50s to women's rights in the 80s to gay rights in the 90s to transgender rights in the 2000s. Big change. Wow. And I think that's a lot of, that's just. Look at the evolution of Judaism in the last 100, 200 years between Shtetl and this room. So this is what I would say, David, just to this point. Um, You know what? I don't say the second paragraph of the Shema because of this uh, logic of, and if you don't do, then you won't get, but if you do do, you'll bless. Not my God. I just just say, now let's turn to page 37, and it's not in the Reconstructionist Sidor. That's omission. Am I I changing Judaism? I hope not. (laughs) And I don't take it out. This was back to Rita's earlier point. I think you leave. I think you can preserve so much of it unless it's a direct attack. And even that direct attacker could say it's not that. But I think it's smoother to just be like, here are the things you can't do. Can't do this. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. Now, it's the schmo who goes, but what about that? Mm-hmm. All right, don't do that either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but at the end, it says amen. I well, think you should agree. Consent. Then that's the debate. That's the discussion. And I think if we could just uh, the prayer would be to have machlokot l'shem shamayim, arguments for heaven's sake, which our rabbis Hillel and Shammai defy, define as shesofolehit kayem, that the the result is that both sides understand better where they're coming from. That's the civil discourse that's missing right now. The omission what uh, the memorial of John McCain really has helped us see is a time when Biden and McCain could sit on the floor together and not just socialize, but really talk policy, um, sharing things like brain cancer from, God, that was so powerful, of Biden's life with Kennedy and really coming together. And then in a complete, did Trump not know that McCain's funeral was being held in Arizona, or was that an omission of ignorance or intentional? I won't say. I, I, I'm not. I'm not. This is not that. This is Torah, and to this, and to this, uh, to these challenges that everyone must say Amen. I do want to find liturgy and context that people can say Amen to. And what I found, and frankly, in my life, is that when I'm bending over backwards to try to reinterpret uh, said law, they don't buy it. It's t- I could call it, like, you know, I, I'll say it uh, a thousand times. Asher bachar kolamim is half the line that shows us from all people is uh, an exclusionist elitism that I don't believe any of us agree, and the founder of Reconstructionism has said no. Ve natanlanu et torato, the apology that I make, and I'll admit it's an apology. The only reason I'm unique in this way is this approach to Torah. This approach, because I've received this beautiful text that helps me unpack, reconstruct, and, and do that. So that's why I can read that line with great pride. And I'm not a, uh, a, a racist. Maybe. But I could explain that a thousand times. Someone who thinks a Sherba Chobano means elitism. Can't change it, which is why I like we got both. Yeah. Uh, bouncing off what uh, the point. And I have Dana, to curse you more, Bert, so Dana go ahead. brought up about Amen. The Hebrew, it says Kol Ha'am. Is that really saying each person, or is it saying the people the as a whole? Oh, no. I think the pageantry is clear that you have two mountaintops yeah. along a valley that creates that echo chamber. Amen. Amen. Remember, so it, we, it we did this visually. Everybody. everybody. Have you ever seen immigration? Have you ever seen one of these when everybody? Yes. Whew. It's powerful. 
Oh, it's extraordinary. And now magnify that. And uh, my sanctuary in San Francisco, um, it actually had an echo chamber so that you could sing and the and literally your liturgy bounces back. This antiphonal. All right, good. Ezra's gay. No, we already were there. I, I'll laugh with you. I'll laugh with you. Is it possible that Ezra was gay? You know, I don't think that they... Uh, yeah, it's a scale of 1 to 10. I, you know, I don't know. That's such a deeper question. You know what's happening right now? Oh, see, I don't want to go there. The question about what is gay, uh, you know, even that I could unpack. Listen, I, there's so many different things. But I think that that's such a far stretch, and I don't think it's fair to our rabbis to say... Ah, the redactor didn't put it in at that time. Do I think that the priesthood was very concerned with sexual proclivities? Why it happened in Leviticus? Their holiness code, why were they so obsessed with it? Probably from a temple reconfiguration that they wanted to make sure everything was kosher for obvious reasons as we turn today to Philadelphia. Because it needed to be in that cultic way. This is a very different context of Deuteronomy in a metropolitan. The priesthood, also probably post-exilic script as well, was trying to construct a very different idealized time. Uh, a nostalgia, frankly, of a temple cultic practice that was a snow dome of fantasy. Full healing. Yes. And and so and the genius here is threading in a reconstruction of what happened and why it happened that before it happened, but historically this text seems not seamless, but it's a insertion of a different time of history. No question Ezra did more, the Torah and its revolutionary. They are praising a cultic worship that was already gone. Just like when I pray the prayers of my ancestors that they always did, these weren't the prayers of my... (laughs) They were, but I feel authentic and totally authentic in my own skin too. That's genius. I mean, that's why great... Great theater, great art is both timeless, and it takes a genius to make it look like it was always there. That's that's great art, or great genius of of rhetoric. Well, that's obvious. <laughs> you know, when you hear something that's like, oh yeah, okay, but to make it sound so clear, uh, uh, Alex. Uh, uh, I just read this New Yorker piece on Alex Ross. Uh, uh, He's, he's a beautiful, beautiful portraiture of his, uh, of his wife, thousands of portraits. And like Matisse, his cutout, so simple. Oh, yeah, isn't that easy? Gen- uh, total reworking of art history and the way that they did it. Just, uh, I want to just curse you a, a few more times, and then we can talk about some of your favorites. Can I yeah, please, George. Yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I believe it, but you establish laws about known crimes. Crimes that you don't know about, you don't establish laws. So in the earlier version, homosexuality may have been a major problem. Now, maybe it went away, so you don't need a law. I don't believe it. I'm not happy with the word problem. (laughs) So, George, I do this with my kids. Okay, let's sit. Let's let that sit in the air for a second. I will give you three seconds to take back that conjecture. You have every right to keep it or not. That's up to you. I said I Okay. It is. It is. Could it also have been related to differentiating from what was going on with the uh, with the Canaanites and with their religion at that time? I know I've heard Rabbi yeah. Abbey talk some of the laws. Certainly to do with that idolatry and in, in Leviticus, right. but we're in such a different time between Canaanites and Babylon. You're talking almost a thousand yeah, you're talking a thousand years of history. And what was happening in Babel? We were quite comfy in Babel. I just want you to see that even in Deuteronomy, 
They're talking us. We made it. We're good. We're sitting on top of the hill. And yet, these curses, which is, uh, look, I don't have to, I just look around Chautauqua. You'll strike you with madness, blindness, and dismay. That's just a general curse. Let, let me curse you. Okay, no. Do you want to make your point first before? Just a quick question. You know, yeah. Ignorance of my reading, maybe. Curse be the man, curse be the man. Are they talking curse be the human, or are they saying curse be the man? Adam. Adam. Not curse be the No. No. It's the person, the human. Yeah. Adam is human. Uh, Aleph, God, dam, blood. Yeah? Divine blood. You ever heard that interpretation? And Adama, hey, is the earthy. That's why Adam came, came from Adama. And Arur, just for a second, Orer with an ayin is be, to be awoke. So Arur with an aleph is Arar, is life, energy. Aleph often is an antonym, meaning not, not awake. So, back to my, my blessing, the translation of blessing as empowerment, Arur is just uh, flat. And that is so much of this. Madness, blindness, dismay. You grope at noon as the blind gropes in the dark. You will not prosper in your ventures, constantly robbed and abused, none to give help. This, uh, you know, and I just, I see it in, in where I just moved. You build a house, you don't even live in it. That's so sad. <laughs> see these homes, all these homes, for whom? I'm not saying, I don't want to curse you. I, I want it to be a source of empowerment. But I'm challenging you. Who's going to Caruso? Are we building this for ourselves? Yeah. Amen. Amen. We better. We better. But this is the challenge. This is where I, I really do. Look, this isn't my philosophy of life of how to make people uh, live stronger lives. But I'm saying that at the same time, there's a little, you know, personal. Yeah, I believe in the iron skillet of the soul. Okay, so what's the iron skillet of the soul? What's iron skillet? Anybody know iron skillet cooking? The cast iron? What is it? And what is it? What do you do with it? Of course, you have to season it. So, you season it, and with what? Fat, coits, oil, fat, fat, grime, grease. Again and again. Don't clean it. You clean it, but not the soap. Oil and water, but that's that's not really clean. You wipe, right. And in fact, (laughs) chefs will tell you, don't use water. You know what you use? Heat and brush. Heat. You heat it up. You heat it up. That's how you season it, too. That's right. And then it increases the seasoning. This is how I write good sermons. But I don't like it. Two weeks. One week. No. uh, I'm, I'm constantly churning through my own stuff and heating myself to a great fire and putting a fire under me and saying, work, work. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. I wake up and I, I curse. The, the first word out of my mouth is, Holy ch-! I didn't do the laundry. It's a day. Oh, my God. I didn't write the form of the... I know. Well, that's exactly what happens. I mean, that's what happens. That's 530 to 6. And then I do all the things from 6 to 7. And then I realize, oh, my God. I just realized... But that's an iron skillet of the soul, and that's a dangerous... I'm just, I'm being very honest with you. This has motivated me, and I was a slacker in high school, and that that college application to say, all right, I could always hope you could be... eh." If you start with the Modani prayer in the morning, it will prevent you from going to that place of, oh, I forgot... Start your day with gratitude. I, I love it. I love it. It's been 40 years. I pray every day of my life. I, I still wake up with this iron skillet. And I'm just telling you, there's tremendous power in it. I, I, I don't know. This is Freudian sublimation. I mean, I'm just going straight, straight Freudian. I, let me just even worse. And there's just, I have to curse you a couple more times, and then we'll get to talk. No, no. This is what hurts so much. And this is what just hurts so much. Uh, I'm on chapter 28. Verse 63, and as Burton noted, when we read this in the Torah, we read it with a very hushed voice. Verse 63, they've put this in one chapter. Do you see how it's verse 63? 
Well, trust me, if, if you want to talk about eating your own children, I mean, we can go there, but I just, I don't need to be that graphic. I find the subtler hand to be a much nastier whip. Rabbi, what's the page? Page 1207, 1207. Your father used the subtler hand too, didn't he? Oh yeah. Oh no. Hey God. God bless. You're going to meet them all. So he's a he's a wonderful soul. He just really cared about me. Was worried about me. He was worried about me. Just kind of shock abroing it. You know, I wasn't allowed to go to Santa Barbara. I God bless UCSB. The, city the college. The college. Oh. So I went to Michigan. Like it really made a difference. But that's okay. okay. This really hurts me. And so I, I apologize. And as Adonai once delighted making you prosperous and many, so Adonai will now delight in causing you to perish and wiping you out. You shall be torn from the land that you are about to enter and possess. That's some nasty conditional love. Of course, they didn't perish. And they didn't get wiped out. There they are in Bavel, as but as an elite minority, uh-huh. as elite minority, few in number, trying to inspire them to say this is about what you're about to do, and you could lose it all. That conditional love that God, that's a sadistic God, no? Yeah. That actually will delight in you? Because I've always thought, oh, you're suffering. There's, there's a, you know, Rebbe Akiva is very much... a. Not against, because this is Deuteronomy and it's Torah, but he sees God as crying when, when you sin, when you're astray away. I'm not delighting yeah. in it. Now, this again. Let's and if you look at the time context. Yes. This is a hundred to whatever number of years post exilic, and so a lot has gone down. And Rezra is is coming back and putting this in. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so you know what, what you know. What does that mean, uh, really? He's it's a post hoc um, uh, accusation that, that uh, you know the Israelites blew it. This was the explanation as to why, and then back yeah. to Sarah one two o seven verse sixty three, and back to Sarah's. That I think he's challenging the elite, the one percenters of Jewish Babylon, to have some responsibility for the stranger and the widow amongst them, and not simply be uh, on the page before, 56, verse 56, the page before. And she who is most tender and dainty among you, so tender and dainty, she would never venture to set a foot on the ground. And I've seen it's such a beautiful, it describes someone in such luxury that their foot never touches the ground. That is the Manolo Blahnik of the Babylonian era. And then it says that she will. Uh, you know, some, some horrors. And so I agree with you, but I think his challenge is not to literally re-enter the land of Israel. Right. Eretz, this is, comes from Aviva Zornberg, uh, that Eretz can mean land, but Haaretz is the field, like a field of experience, the pitch. And so that totally recontextualizes what Haaretz, entering the land, possessing, if you possess the field, if you truly enter the field, are you outside the field of experience? Are you exiled from the field of being in the game? <clears throat> totally different context of Israel, and I think that's Ezra. And truly, Ezra does want, remember, let's go back to Cyrus and allowing us back into the land and giving us that opportunity to re-inhabit the land. There is future movement back geographically, but he's also simultaneously talking to a society that is doing quite well in Babylonia. I mean, you look at the book of Daniel, for example. Quite well. He's Nebuchadnezzar's number two. Who not, uh, that's a different, that's a totally how, different. How do we deal with the Christian criticism that the God of the Torah is mean and vicious and that Christianity, therefore, is the religion of love of the loving God? Yeah, I, This is exactly the criticism that's used against this 
Yeah. So what's the argument? This is I mean, tough this, love. This is like anti-Semitic, clear father here for condemning the God of, of Israel. And, and I think this is Moses. Again, I can recontextualize it. Moses, but that's really Ezra. And I don't have to put in Bunny Fufu. Ezra, you know, a little Bunny Fufu quotes. Uh, this is Moses speaking for God as a parent desperate to get his children to change. And this is pointing out how desperate the parent is. And that I have in my tradition a struggle with God that is open and gets a little voluminous. It is not Presbyterian because they could look all nice and sweet and love on the outside, but that's not real love. I like my iron skillet. I do. I like the heat. I like the passion. I like the intensity. Don't F up. Oh, come on. You're going to watch another one. You're never going to get in. Oh, oh. But, and so is that tough love? I would say it is love. What you are talking about is not love. That is simply coddling. And I think that Christianity is not, for me, that same intensity unless it is reconfigured as it has been through some of our great prophets, uh, Martin Luther King, etc., that really reconfigured the Christian imperative towards the things that Sarah was talking about, these uh, ex- extern- externalities outside of our own well-being and grace. Yes, please. Uh, George, everybody's spoken. So good. Bob, uh, Judith, George. I think that um, what's, what's being pointed out... Can you speak louder? I, I think that what... I can't. Um, I, I, I think that um, what's being pointed out um, needs to be relative, needs to be contextualized. What's, what's um, bad in a hundred years ago is not so bad now. Um, and these, you know, what we're talking about here um, needs to, about Christianity and whatever, um, is, is in the context of 500 years, 500 years difference where, where things, things have changed. I, I will always, I'll say two things to that. One, it's like, oh, my God, how barbaric. They sacrifice animals for no reason. I'm like, 2,000 years ago, they were sacrificing humans. So there's a nice development. Yes, and... How, right. Well, no, I, I mean, I say this to the, uh, you know, to my... the ve- God bless vegans. Uh, but, you know, the ethics of animals and eating is a very sense... another sensitive issue, but context, change. But... Torah won't work unless it is a timeless document that I can enter myself in. And that is something I've really tried, Carol, uh, so hard to say, what is, what is speaking to me about this right now? And, uh, and what's speaking to me right now, and I want to turn to it and spend our last, because uh, I, I we have about five more minutes before we do Misha Beirach and uh, Kaddish Tom. Uh, just the ending of this. And it does close with blessing, which is so, so strange to me after you get ripped a new one by a loved one, and then they say, but come here, baby, I love you. <laughs> That's how I little feel, that little coda after just all of this. Um, we're on page 1207, verse 68. Oh, no, oh, 66. And this is just for those who suffer with anxiety, myself included, uh, it becomes a total non-ethical issue, but a psychological one. Just hear this. The life you face should be precarious. You live in terror night and day with no assurance of survival. This is, for me, how do we break this horrible curse that in the morning you say, if only it were evening, And in the evening you say it were only morning because of your heart and your dread. And your eyes will see. Go to a good shrink. (laughs) Uh, And I even think 
Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur lays it out there, and I do agree with psychology, uh, medications, meditations, the things that can help us calm ourselves. But what this incredible text has done is taken all of these externalities about enemies and very much made it about ourselves, really our personal lives of how we see this world. Do I come into a synagogue of a Torah study worried that I'm not going to have the wherewithal to survive the brilliance of the people that are surrounding me? You know, sometimes I'm nervous that way. But uh, what is the flip side of this? And I do believe this blessing is that I wake up inspired to change the world. And that when I go to bed at night, I'm just thrilled at all the things that have happened that I'm so excited for the face of that next day. I don't wake up every day. But sometimes I do. Yeah. You know, uh, this is brilliant how you came to this country. Because when you play against life and death, immortality, and we're up to try to get it, I mean, it's within this concept that everything you said here this morning has to be played against. Because, you know, the next breath. And I think, right here, I do think that the Torah is genius just to revere both Leviticus and Deuteronomy at the same time that I critique is that it gives both the personal, the collective, the familial, the, the, the whole, the universal, all together, and it is a matter of approach. And, and really, when I'm dealing with these terrors and these fears personally, you go back, and even you can see at 1198, 1199, how it's set up in the Torah, orthographically, how the Hebrew is arranged. You feel its solidity, its communal nature. And so, you know, in these closing moments... Can I pray for enough breath and spirit that the evolution not only of our Torah remains timeless with its historicities, but that as individuals we face our challenges and when we feel that that fear of curse and terror, that we also feel the strength of a community, all of us facing these same challenges of life to live with health, to live with beauty, to look beyond ourselves, to find that each of us share that same potential of blessing and that blessing can be universally recognized and so that all the people facing one another collectively can say, Amen. Amen.